This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This episode discusses topics relating to mental health and briefly includes the subject of suicide in relation to select artworks. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Explore stories, videos, gift shop goodies, and hundreds of thousands of artworks on artuk.org. You can also find Art UK and myself on Twitter. Get the latest art news and stories on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot, and follow me at Farron Gibson. Conversations around mental health have been improving in recent years, with public figures and civilians alike making an effort to destigmatize long-held notions around mental wellness. Through tracing artworks relating to this topic across time, we get some insight into how these ideas have developed. Today, we're going to explore art as it refers to the term madness. So let's first find out what that means. Madness is a very slippery term, and its meaning absolutely changes across time and shifts depending on its historical, cultural uh, or medical context. And it can be a very fraught term. That's Anna Jameson, doctoral researcher in the history of art at Birkbeck. If we think about dictionary definitions, the Oxford English Dictionary defines madness as insanity, mental illness or impairment. And if you Google the word, similarly, the definition is the state of having a serious mental illness. And whilst historically words such as madness, insanity, even craziness uh, have been used fairly interchangeably to describe what we would today think about as mental illness, these words were used during times when madness wasn't necessarily seen as an illness or a medical condition linked to the brain. Today, the term madness can be a problematic one in that it reinforces rather than alleviate certain stigmas and stereotypes, and this might be to do with gender or class or thinking about sort of normal ways to behave. But it is a useful term for us to think about because of what it tells us about the way mental illness may have been imagined, about broad cultural meanings and changing attitudes. Before we began to make associations between the functions of the brain and mental health in the 18th century, some believed there could be more spiritual forces at play. It was often explained through morality, through religion, um, and understood as a punishment from God. And medieval Europe tended to rely on witchcraft or devil worship or even demonic possession to explain the causes of madness. And exorcism was sometimes prescribed as an acceptable treatment. So in this way, the mad were often lumped into a broader category of deviants and individuals such as prostitutes, criminals, vagrants were sort of clustered up with mad. As well as supernatural explanations and accusations of deviancy, some causes of madness were explained via issues with the body, particularly imbalances with what were referred to as the four humors. This was a model developed by the ancient Greeks where the body was seen as made up of four liquids known as the humors. So these were blood, yellow bile, black bile and phlegm. And when all four were present and, you know, sort of equal, uh, the body was understood as healthy. But when they were out of balance, a person became ill and too much black bile, it was thought, would lead to madness. And because of this, madness was often seen as treatable through physical procedures. Um, So very different to the way we understand treating mental health now. These physical procedures were seen as balancing the human. So bloodletting, for example, was seen as getting rid of the bad blood and allowing the sense of balance across the body. 
As the 18th century progressed and medical knowledge developed, however, new approaches saw understandings of madness move into the brain and it was seen more specifically as a disorder of the mind. It was often understood through the irritation of nerves or nervous fibres, which could be caused by emotional or physical reasons. And this was seen as causing a real proliferation of nervous complaints um, sort of over the 18th and the 19th century. Things such as hysteria, hypochondria, neurasthenia, and madness was often used as as an umbrella term for all sorts of mental disorders and complaints. And skipping forward to today and how we sort of use these different terms, There's a really interesting movement away from the medical perspective of psychiatry, uh, with leading practitioners and activists actually starting to push back against the phrase mental illness and at times using the word madness, which I think is really fascinating. Um, And mental illness is now sometimes seen as assuming that anyone diagnosed with a condition like depression or schizophrenia is ill or diseased, which is actually felt to be quite an unhelpful or inaccurate categorising. And alternative terms have been proposed, such as distress. Um, and words such as this are seen to seem to encourage or illustrate the range of experience and experiences that people with these diagnoses face. And I think that these sort of arguments and shifts show how fraught terminology can be when we're thinking about these, these terms and these themes. In art, madness has been represented in a number of ways and across mediums. One of the best-known early examples is Albert Dürer's engraving Melancholia. This was from 1514 and shows a gloomy winged figure who sort of holds her head in her hand and surveys a very busy scene at a distance. And she's seen as the personification of melancholy. Now, melancholy has a very long history and a long cultural history. It was understood as a disease which was a form of madness, but it was different from the more manic, animalistic and sort of deviant forms of madness that I've just mentioned, thinking about religion and devil worship. Instead, melancholy was about solitude, prolonged states of pensiveness and intense bouts of feeling. And during the 16th and 17th centuries, art historians have described a cult of melancholia, which arose throughout Europe, and as well as being linked with a gloomy state of mind, it was increasingly celebrated and linked to artistic and creative genius. And I think we see this in Dürer's etching. It was one of the first times that the concept of melancholy was represented quite so explicitly in the arts. Just under 20 years later, in 1532, Lucas Cranach the Elder depicted melancholy in a similar work in that it was also rich with symbolism and we see the personification of melancholy through a woman on the artwork's right-hand side. But one of the main ways that Dürer's print has been interpreted is that it's thinking about creative process and the female figure serves as his sort of muse, awaiting inspiration, which may or may not come and may then lead to further melancholy and further dejection and isolation. And some see this as a sort of self-portrait of Dürer. It's interesting, though, because he also did things of witches and witchcraft. Definitely. So it's definitely... A connection there of something of putting something onto women, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a real cultural history of the mad woman. It's actually very interesting because early representations of melancholy, as we see with Dura and Cranach, are female. Then madness begins to take a quite decided male turn. And then mm-hmm. it switches back to women. So one of the key icons of madness I think within the history of art and something that is very common within book covers and frontispieces talking about 
art and madness. Are Chaos Gabriel Sibber's raving madness and melancholiness, which were these two very masculine male depictions. These were classically inspired sculptures made in 1677, which were created to flank Bethlehem's gates. And Bethlehem was London's most notorious asylum, which was more commonly known as Bedlam. And those who wandered past the asylum would be greeted by these two imposing figures or maybe if you were going in because during this period throughout the 17th and 18th century Bethlehem was open for visitors so people in exchange for a few coins could go inside and view the mad within. So in this sense the melancholic and manic representations at its gates almost sort of beckoned visitors in almost sort of added to a sense of spectacle. Bethlehem Hospital would come to be home to some notable artists, including Richard Dadd, who we'll come back to later, and Louis Wayne, who is known for his psychedelic drawings of cats. At the start of his career, he drew more realistic images of cats, and later began to draw anthropomorphized and increasingly stylized versions. Bethlehem also features as a setting in a scene from a very famous series by 18th century painter William Hogarth. A rake's progress is unquestionably Bethlehem's most infamous representation. It was created by William Hogarth between 1732 to 1734. It was engraved the following year and published in print form by 1735. And Hogarth had already made a name for himself as a social commentator, using his engravings to comment on the follies and hubris of Georgian society. And in A Rake's Progress, we see the final plate of Hogarth's series of eight, which told the story of Tom Rakewell, who'd been a debauch, on a debauched journey of uh, moral behaviour through um, London's, say, less savoury spaces. And this journey culminated in Bethlehem and in A Rake's Progress. Um, in this final print, we see Rakewell dominating the scene as he lies chained on the floor in front of us in the sort of typical raving mania. And he's shown among a menagerie of really strange characters, a jester, a melancholic, a bishop, a magician, emperor, musician, astrologer, all these different characters, all male, which I think is interesting, who display varying levels of insanity. And in the background, we see this nod to the um, culture of visiting the asylum. We see two fashionable dressed women who are unceremoniously enjoying the spectacle and they peer into the cell of a madman on display. And the work has been interpreted in all sorts of ways. It's gained a huge amount of attention. It's, it's, it's very fascinating. It's not really hard to see why it has. Some scholars have argued that it reveals the 18th century preoccupation with folly and delusion, whilst others have seen it as a sort of microcosm for the state of England at the time, and Hogarth is sort of holding up a mirror to society. It's also seen as an instructive work, but Perhaps most strongly, many have argued that it highlights the opportunities for voyeurism and titillation that a visit to Bethlehem could provide. And it's interesting in that it casts both us as the viewer, but also those who are physically engaging in this scopophilic form of spectatorship during the time um, within a voyeuristic role and really questioning the ethics for viewing when attitudes towards visiting the hospital in microcosm, but also on the macro scale, attitudes towards madness was changing. There was a lot of criticism throughout the 18th century directed towards this practice of viewing. And this was in line with a kind of greater humanitarian movement across England, which would become, people were becoming more sympathetic to the mad, to the infirm, the elderly, to criminals, even animals. And so the mad was sort of swept up within this. 
And people were viewing insanity through a more humane and charitable lens and seeing people not as these sort of demonic animalistic creatures, but as individuals in need and worthy of proper care. We see depictions of madness in art as it relates to men and women, though at periods, women were seen to be more fragile and thus unequally and unfairly associated with madness. As we saw in our witchcraft episode, there were times when the idea of madness was used as a cudgel to control women's behavior. Let's look at Shakespeare's Ophelia as an example. She has just completely fascinated writers and painters and directors ever since Hamlet was first performed, despite the fact that she only appears in five of the play's 20 scenes. Ophelia's driven mad when her father Polonius is murdered by her lover Hamlet, and she dies from drowning in a river. And it is interesting, actually, that often it is her death which has really captivated people, even though her death isn't shown on stage. It's interesting the way her representation speaks to the contemporary views on female madness, um, sexuality. On the Elizabethan stage, Ophelia would wear white. And this, during the Elizabethan period, was a very common colour to show female madness. And early versions of Ophelia's and her, and her famous mad scene show her in white. She has long flowing hair. But there's a sensuality here. She's giving away flowers and singing bawdy songs. And scholars such as Elaine Showalter have argued that this represented an act of symbolic deflowering and that the Elizabethans enjoyed and were comfortable with this. But this kind of representation was really problematic for the Georgians in the 18th century. They didn't like these erotic connotations and they wanted to see her more innocent and more harmless. And so the more sexualized features were replaced um, with something a bit more dignified and the role was censored, her lines were cut. And we see actually in visual representations, a more refined and modest Ophelia during this period. By the Romantic period, we have another shift. Ophelia sometimes becomes depicted using the language of the Gothic and this sort of sense of mystery and sexuality. And more romantic productions started to reinstate her sexual frisson that the Georgians and Augustans had taken away. We see several paintings of Ophelia in the 19th century. She's often shown dressed in white, surrounded by flowers, and casting her eyes off of the picture plane with a mournful expression. She appears in a few pre-Raphaelite works during this period, most famously in John Everett Millais' highly detailed painting of the distraught Ophelia lying in a stream at the moment of her death. She gets the pre-Raphaelite treatment in that she is placed within nature. She's wearing an incredibly beautiful ornate dress. And this is a painting really steeped in symbolism. Millet has used flowers to suggest a variety um, of values and symbols such as faithfulness, innocence, chastity. And thinking about the sort of cultural prevalence of this pre-Raphaelite notion, I think is interesting. Just last year, in 2018, there was a film that kind of went under the radar called Ophelia. Um, it starred Daisy Ridley of Star, um, Star Wars fame and a whole host of sort of Hollywood stars. Um, and it was sort of determined to tell the story of Ophelia um, from her um, point of view, from her viewpoint. And I was really struck when I saw this film because it starts with a shot of Daisy Ridley as Ophelia, which almost mimics the Millais Ophelia. She is sort of um, in the river, she's covered in flowers and a beautiful dress. And it's a really striking comparison. And I think it's interesting that um, today that is the version of Ophelia that sort of sticks. 
For a male depiction of madness, we can look to representations of Nebuchadnezzar, which offers a stark contrast to Ophelia, whose madness takes the form of grief and sadness. Nebuchadnezzar is a much more manic, animalistic representation of madness, showing a biblical king who went mad. And he's described in Book of Daniel in the Old Testament as being driven from men and eating grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles. So we have this sort of very bestial representation of madness, which we're seeing a variety of prints from the period. He's often shown as naked, hairy, moving around on all fours, and often with claw-like long nails. And we see this in William Blake's representation of Nebuchadnezzar from 1795. Whilst Blake shows him as sort of animalistic on all fours, he does have a human expression, I think. He has a sense of recognition across his features. And we see a similar kind of print from Robert Blythe. This print shows a figure. Yes, he's animalistic, but he's also shown in a moment of reawakening. There's light streaming down upon him from the print's left-hand corner. And there's a sense that he's recovering. He's recovering his reason, exactly as the title of the print suggests. I think it's interesting that within depictions of women across the history of art, the idea of recovery is often absent. Modern scholars have attempted to retrospectively diagnose Nebuchadnezzar's mental condition, variably saying that he may have had an advanced syphilitic infection, megalomania, or even boanthropy, which is the belief that one is a cow. Contemporary psychologists will tell you that it's not appropriate to diagnose a client they have not personally treated. But this doesn't stop speculation about historical figures, as scholars seek to get more insight into their lives and behaviors. It's interesting to think about this idea of retrospective diagnosis when thinking about artists and the way that we may be able to diagnose an artist through their artwork. And someone who has received a lot of attention in this way is Vincent van Gogh, who was seen as suffering from a real, you know, real myriad of medical conditions. And he himself believed he had epilepsy. And it's been argued he may have had borderline personality disorder, chronic sunstroke, bipolar disorder and all sorts of other um, illnesses which um, contributed to suicide in 1819. And thinking about how this affected his art, some have argued that the intense use of yellow that characterised many of his paintings was due to the medication he was on, and he was given a drug um, which could lead to people seeing life with sort of yellow and green tinted spectacles in a way. And I think it's very interesting how fascinated people have been with what happened to Van Gogh. There's part, part of this is due to a sort of what if mentality, thinking what if certain treatments or medication had been available, and he may have avoided his tragic fate and grown further as an artist. But others, I think, have really found it interesting to think about the ways that paintings might give us clues to someone's mental state. It's not just about what paintings might tell us about the painter and their health, but also about the process of painting and what that might do for a painter. So Van Gogh spent time in the San Remy Asylum and he writes about how he found painting a real comfort. This reflects the healing potential of practicing art. And since Van Gogh's time, there's been much research in this area. The term art therapy was first coined in 1942 by the artist Adrian Hill when he discovered the benefits of drawing and painting while under care for tuberculosis. Before it was officially called art therapy, art was used as a part of a moral treatment approach to psychiatric care. This was a really interesting moment where new forms of treatment were being set up against physical 
remedies and physical treatments. And moral therapy was seen as appealing to the mind and to the emotions. And it was really rooted into the belief that cure come from galvanizing certain parts of the self, which has somehow got lost. And there are all sorts of ways that this could be done. The early proponents of these type of therapies were the Quakers. And the most famous example of a sort of uh, model institution that used these methods was the York Retreat, which was set up in the 1790s in York. And there was a real focus on close relationships between patient and staff, occupational therapy, bibliotherapy, so using books and libraries, writing in the asylum magazines and art. The artist Richard Dad, who spent 42 years in institutions such as Bethlehem and Broadmoor Hospitals, is a very well-known example of a patient who was allowed and encouraged to paint. He was actually given his own studio and had free access to the grounds, to the garden, and was even given knives to do his carvings, despite being quite a violent patient. And actually, one of Bethlehem's stewards, George Henry Hayden, commissioned him. And that led to one of his best-known works, The Fairy Feller's Master Stroke. A really interesting example, I think, of the way art and madness and treatment all intersect. And whilst that had its origins in the late 18th and 19th century, it's you know, very important and has continued today. That's it for this episode. My thanks to Anna Jameson for her insight on this topic. To see artworks from today's discussion, be sure to visit artuk.org, where you'll find the abridged written version of this episode. Also, if you like this series, then put a ring on it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be notified as soon as there are new episodes. While you're there, leave us a rating. I recommend five stars, but that's just me. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.